Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Wealth Tech Show, the podcast that discusses how technology is going to reshape investing and personal finance. I'm Ian Horn, and today I'm joined by a fantastic guest, Mary Abasanwa, fintech growth lead at Seckle. Now, Mary and I met recently at Fintech Week London, and I realized I needed to get her onto this podcast for several reasons. I'll go into those shortly, but first, hi, Mary. Great to see you. Uh, How are you doing today? I'm good. Great to see you too, Ian. Yeah, so after we met at the conference... I, I realize we have a shared interest in the democratization of investing uh, and also the possibilities that might emerge from embedded finance. I mean, that's all exciting stuff. We're going to discuss that today. We're also both excited by how technology can change the face of financial services for future generations, as well as our own. So Mary, I should add, is the founder of the brilliant Now You're Talking Network for Ambitious Female Millennials. So we've got quite a range of topics to cover. And rest assured, I will attempt and possibly fail to come up with a snappy title after we've edited this. Um, so <laughs> time some scene setting. Mary, what do you actually do as fintech growth lead at Seckle, and how are you helping companies to, to launch investments? Sure. Um, well, really excited to be on the World Tech podcast today. Um, Seckle, I guess I think of us as the stripe for investments or investing as a service. We are a B2B fintech infrastructure tech player that helps people launch investment apps or propositions, um, which is basically long and short, um, helping people have access to the stock market through investing in stocks, ETFs, funds, um, and really trying to drive that agenda of democratizing access to investments and different financial products. As FinTech Growth Lead, um, for the past nine months or so, I've been supporting the company with, I guess, turbocharging our growth and strategy, working with FinTechs that are looking to launch investments um, and to democratize investing um, and really ensure that we expand our portfolio of FinTech clients. So spending all day, every day speaking to FinTech founders across the UK, thinking about um, how to get more people investing in different ways and in different themes as well. Yeah, that's really exciting. So we've uh, featured Seckle several times in the in our wealth tech content over the last year or so. And it's often been from a financial advice or wealth management perspective and people mm-hmm. having their own in-house platforms, basically. But this fintech side is a bit different to what I think our readers are familiar with. So could you give us some examples of, of companies that you work with and how you're helping democratize investment for those companies? Yes. So our fintech companies are usually utilizing our API, so application program interface, um, and thinking about how can they plug in our API um, for plug and play service into their UX, which is usually their app, um, to create an investing app that is built on leading technology and very customizable. So some of our clients you might know of, um, like Penfold, who are doing pensions for the self-employed and now workplace pensions as well. Um, Tillit, who offer a range of funds for investors. Um, we support Crowdcube on their IPO proposition, Circa 5000 and Green Growth um, Investments focused on kind of impact investing. So we have such a range of fintech clients uh, focusing on democratizing investing in different spheres and or adding their own kind of tailored propositions around that and maybe different audiences as well. Yeah, so investing isn't just for people who speak to a financial advisor or wealth manager anymore, basically. Yes, exactly. Um, it's really thinking about how can people match maybe their investing to their values or even offsetting their carbon footprint or just investing in companies that they're passionate about and inquisitive about as well. Yeah, and I, I really think our listeners need to take that seriously as well because we don't have a, a monopoly on this anymore, do we? People are having access to the market. Um, and obviously there are hurdles to jump, like financial education and helping yeah. people make the right decisions. But yeah, these developments are happening, aren't they? 
Agreed. And I'm really excited to see um, the power of having the execution uh, play with DIY investing, but also a lot of what I'm seeing around embedded ed tech. So embedding in education and driving financial literacy whilst also um, helping people invest. So not only telling them this is, these are a range of funds you can choose from, but actually here, why don't you learn what an ETF, what an ETF is or um, what a fund is and those kind of things as well. I think um, uh, learning whilst you execute and trade is really important as well. Oh, definitely. I can imagine. It's such a weird journey from, from Dogecoin to the moon all the way through to uh, what is an ETF. Honestly. But one experience. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to see more education and learning um, happen across the industry. Brilliant. Okay. Well, look, when we spoke uh, after Fintech Week London, one thing we talked about was embedded finance. And that, fi- that kind of fits into the democratization of, of investing too. But it also speaks to how our relationship with money is changing, how our relationship with our own personal finances is changing, which I think, again, our listeners need to pay attention to because it will affect how clients spend money. It will affect everything. So embedded finance probably needs uh, a description, doesn't it? Because it's one of them terms, you know, we've already had API and UX in this podcast. We're doing pretty well on jargon. But embedded finance, uh, if you're unfamiliar, it involves financial services or products being embedded into transactions and engagements with non-financial organizations. So if you want some examples, uh, an example could be using your phone to make a payment. It could be insurance being offered as a tick box option when you buy a holiday. And another very relatable example would be a buy now, pay later being added as a payment option when you purchase something from an online retailer. So Mary, this is still an emerging area, isn't it? Embedded finance. Yeah. How do you think it's going to change consumer behavior or even attitudes to financial services? I think I'm so excited by embedded finance and how that will continue to evolve. I think um, it's really just about making financial services a seamless and slick experience for consumers, meeting them at the point of need, similar to the examples that you just shared. Um, It makes sense to buy your travel insurance when you're booking a flight. Um, It makes sense to, um, yeah, if you're buying a really expensive sofa, be able to split across four payments if you can afford to do so. Um, And those kind of things, I think, uh, in this 21st century age, um, in the age of Uber Eats and Deliveroo, consumers are are used to in other industries. So why not do the same with financial services? And I think it's linked to the trend of kind of unbundling financial services, splitting up different service lines um, and meeting consumers where they need that. Um, And I'm particularly excited about maybe the future of embedded investments, which hopefully will be the next frontier after embedded finance and um, how we can use investments as a way to drive loyalty and engagement with customers. So imagine um, every time you bought something off Amazon, you could also um, put some money into buying Amazon shares and what that could do to drive loyalty and engagement. There's a really good case study from Starbucks in the US um, where they did a pilot where they offered um some customers um, Starbucks shares and they saw that over 50% of those that got shares uh, came back to buy more drinks and things like that at Starbucks. So um, stocks and investments being used as a way to drive loyalty and engagement um, and a sense of ownership with customers, I think will be really exciting. And whether you're a neobank or you're a retailer, um, I'm excited to see more of that happen. 
Yeah, it's such a good example. And you mentioned the Starbucks one when I spoke to you after the event. And, yes. <laughs> you know, as well as what you said, the people who received those shares visited the store 35% more frequently. So this stuff really does work. It's a, a clever way of getting into people's psyche, I suppose, and giving them something more for their money. So I, I, I love that. Um, something I did not prep you for, but I'd like to ask you is how do you see embedded finance changing the world of financial advice or wealth management? Do you think there are certain things that we can embed into those services that would add value? Really great question. I think, um, again, it could be the education angle, um, supporting customers uh, do some education alongside the investments that they're doing. Um, it could be uh, maybe an element of open banking as well to ease kind of payments coming into um, that customers want to invest in as well. Um, so I think, yeah, it's an exciting space and I'm excited to see what else, um, what other innovation will happen in wealth management with embedded finance and embedded investments. Mm -hmm. and, and speaking of wealth management technology, another thing we discussed was the lack of wealth tech at fintech conferences. Now, I, I came over and spoke to you. I noticed you were working with Seckle, who obviously I've worked with many times before. But mm -hmm. other than yourselves, I didn't really recognize any faces from the world that I'm used to, the, the either wealth tech or financial services in the financial advice wealth management world. We, we don't seem to really be represented at wealth management conferences. Now, I spoke to the CEO of Fintech Week London, Rafter Kimper, uh, about this. He suggested it might be because wealth is a fairly private industry. Um, you know, when we spoke about it, you suggested that maybe wealth tech is seen more as a vitamin than a painkiller. I, I loved how you put that. Um, so maybe it doesn't seem so urgent and there might not be seen as such a need for it. But but. Why don't we see more wealth tech at fintech conferences? Because it's it's a big market. Yeah, I think that when people think of fintech, um, at least in the past few years, I've thought of innovation coming from challenger banks and neobanks. So banking has probably been the first frontier in terms of innovation and thinking about what um, how to meet um, consumer expectations and demands. Um, I think that insurance and probably wealth management are playing catch up. So I'm seeing increased prominence at some fintech conferences, but as you said, definitely not enough. Um, but I think that maybe as uh, we head further into a cost of living crisis maybe and people are thinking about how to make more for their money or because um, neobanking is going through a phase where um, your kind of fintech app is probably not that much different from your um, incumbent financial institution app. They've kind of leveled the playing field. They've caught up. They might have started their own uh, fintech uh, startups in-house. Um, so I guess that is less of an exciting story. I think now... Um, the fintech venture capital hopefully is now um, going into other spaces like wealth tech, like insure tech. Um, and I'm excited to see what that will mean in terms of innovation as well. Yeah, definitely. And in these worlds are, you know, we, we give them separate titles, but I guess they are interlinked, aren't they? I mean, exactly. One thing I heard, which I found very interesting at that conference was the idea that once people become more comfortable with embedded finance and say, you know, if you have a chip in your like bracelet or your watch that you use to pay for things and you use it for identification in other areas, once you're more familiar with that technology, then maybe you'll be more open to things like robo advice. Yeah. So do you think that some of that development that we're seeing in other areas of tech will, will bleed into wealth tech? Yeah, I think it has to. And I think um, even just with wealth management and increased consumer appetite for investing over the pandemic, I think that um, it would be remiss of um, other financial institutions to not think about how can we, um, yeah, serve this appetite from consumers for investing and think about how we can integrate it into our service as well.
Mm-hmm. All right, that's that's enough jargon for one minute because we've <laughs> yeah. we've gone hard on that. We started exactly. strong on on the tech jargon. I, I'd actually like to speak now more about yourself. So I listened to your interview on Chanel Pattinson's Her Future Bright podcast, and you discussed your motivations and career and your career advice for other people. Now I realised when I was listening to that one, it was a, a really fascinating conversation. I enjoyed listening to it, but I don't really dwell on these sorts of things that much in the, in the podcast. I'm too busy being a nerd and talking about tech <laughs> to actually ask people about themselves. Um, so look, I actually think it's really important. So my question for you, Mary, is, is what are you looking to achieve in fintech and, and in what, what drives you? Great question. I think that um, fintech is super exciting because it is essentially bringing the financial services industry um, up to date with the latest technology available to us. Um, Yeah, I was just attracted by the innovation happening in the space, that feeling of working in a frontier um, industry and people um, passionate and excited about innovating um, and thinking about how to turn an industry on its head. Um, So that was what attracted me to fintech and having been here um, in this space for a few years, it's definitely been a fun ride. You feel like everyone's working towards a greater purpose, which is really fun. And I guess I'm driven by, um, yeah, thinking about how we can get financial products and service into the hands of people who haven't had them in the past or maybe had to go um, through different stakeholders and kind of that driving that disintermediation of financial services to me is really appealing. Um, No longer does someone have to earn 100K to speak to a financial advisor. They can actually use an investing app and maybe be guided to do some investing. So I think that is really what excites me, thinking about, um, yeah, democratisation um, and, yeah, appealing to new people. Um, only 12% of UK adults um, have a investing app. So I think there's so much white space in terms of um teaching people about this space and encouraging them to think about it as well. So yes, on, on democratization of investing, we're clearly seeing growth in that, aren't we? We've seen the rise of investment apps like Robinhood and Revolut and crowdfunding platforms too, like Crowdcube, Kickstarter, Cedars and Syndicate Room. Now we could look at cryptocurrency too. And while that's a you know unique and somewhat strange example, it's clearly infused a, a large cohort of people to start doing due diligence of varying quality on investments of varying quality. Um, I think my question from that is, how do we actually achieve democratization of investing? I know that's a big question, but how do you think we do it? Wow, that is definitely the million dollar question. Um, I think it's a multi-pronged approach. I think, uh, firstly, probably not so many more tube ads for fintechs. Um, I definitely see loads of that and I don't know how effective all of them are. I think probably consumers are probably a bit overwhelmed actually um, when thinking about the best fintech app to use. So actually what we've seen that has worked really well is thinking about the particular community that you want to support um, and thinking about that throughout the process as well. So what features does this community need? Do they want to invest in certain charities or have roundup kind of features? Um, And how do you portray that message in a way that's really, really clear to the audience? Um, And that is what will make your investing app or investing proposition stand out. Um, I'm excited for investing to move away from um, US stocks, um, US tech stocks and just make money quick to long term investing principles and encouraging people to um, put money away for the kind of medium to long term if they can afford to do so and more reasonable um, long term wealth management strategies that I think um, everyone can learn some good things from. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to see more innovation coming from 
more fintech founders from different backgrounds coming to this space, spotting maybe gaps um, that have been underserved and creating products and features for them in particular. Yeah, you make a really interesting point there, especially, um, you know, as we've seen, the fastest growing investment platforms last year were actually those who offered direct to consumer tools. Yeah. So assets under administration on the direct to consumer platforms actually leapt by 40%. And, and Fundscapes forecast that market will more than double in size by 2026. And sure, that's a forecast. We don't know how it will go, but it does look like people are, are paying real attention. But there's also a great point you made about tech stocks. I mean, some of that growth was actually, you know, it was actually encouraged by the, the meme stocks during lockdown. So there is a much kind of broader educational piece that we need to make. I also want to ask you about how we can get people to trust in automated investing as well. I mean, education is going to be part of it. But surveys by Forrester show that roughly 14% of British adults are happy. Well, you know, they're interested in automated investing. That figures 16% for the US and 12% for France. Mm -hmm. So how do you think we build trust in these programs and these apps that are going to help people to invest hopefully responsibly? I think trust is a gradual thing, but it's about giving consumers um, what they want, um, feeling like you're not only looking after their data appropriately, like um, if you're asking for sensitive things like someone's bank account details or their nationality or um, tax details, then they, they want to feel like you're a legit app um, that is not yeah. going to do something dangerous with that. So I think we can learn a lot from maybe how people have trusted tech companies, or their favorite fashion brands? Um, how do we use similar language and um, emotions to get people to think in the same way about their financial services, um, institutions that they trust their money with as well? Mm -hmm. And we were talking earlier about um, yeah, I think social media and people getting information from TikTok and stuff like that. I mean, how do we get the education piece into this? I think that um, although Sometimes it can be bad to see um, financial advice be given freely on TikTok. I don't think it's all bad. It shows that the consumer appetite and interest is there. So if imagine if we could have informed people sharing that advice in kind of short videos um, with engaging content. Um, I know there are a number of kind of uh, financial education platforms raising investment at the moment as well. I'm excited about that and I think that could be a real breakthrough. Um, yeah, it, it's fine to get financial advice from short videos if the person knows what they're talking about and they're well informed. And actually, we just have to realise that is how a lot of Gen Z and maybe some millennials want to absorb content. So there's nothing wrong with the platform itself. It's only dangerous when the information that they're getting is um, misleading. Yeah, absolutely. And polling firm Britain Thinks found that only, well, in a similar theme to this, found that only two in five DIY investors believe that losing money they've invested is a genuine risk. Oh, wow. Now, I know. I don't know how they qualify that exactly, I, uh, but that does sound worrying. But as you say, I think the attitude needs to be positive, doesn't it? We need to look at that as an opportunity to enlighten people and to help people. Exactly. Rather than to, like, let's have a laugh at social media. I think there's so much that we can do there. Um, so, so yeah, let's let's look at more of your work now. Your your now your talking network, which is is really cool. And when I first met you, I I wasn't actually aware that you did that, and I learned about. it. I was like, wow, this is something we have to discuss. Um, so, can you tell us a bit about it, and then how you how you use that network to support women to to earn more and to be more confident at work? 
Sure. Um, I guess the story is kind of funny because it just, for me, was a way to um, connect with like-minded women outside of my job or even outside of my industry that were passionate about their personal and career development, I guess, zero to eight years working and recognising there probably wasn't a community for a lot of women that was kind of company agnostic, um, that they could share ideas with people and think about their next job opportunity or think about um, moving careers or think about the kind of longer term personal uh, career development goals and there's so much support these days for women uh, to get their first graduate job or to get their first promotion but actually beyond that like how do you find your tribe um, and the support ecosystem and maybe sisterhood that you need um, so the network has evolved from kind of just like 50 of my friends in a whatsapp group to um, we have just under a thousand women on our mailing list now um, and we have a lovely event space that we use um, in Aldgate in London so I have like regular events and talking about topics such as battling imposter syndrome, building a personal brand, finding a workplace sponsor, um, articulating your worth, um, managing a team as a millennial manager, kind of topics that um, I see as really topical for um, millennial and Gen Z women and that maybe they didn't have the environment to talk about those with others. And um, yeah, it's been such a great blessing to meet so many women, share ideas. We have an event tonight actually oh, on wealth actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And it's been a great kind of side hustle. And um, we run events not only for our members, but for companies interested in supporting their own staff um, around these issues as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the whole conversation is around, you know, self-empowerment, which I think is, is, is a great thing. But also the industry is kind of a bit, a bit broken in this respect, isn't it? I mean, the PwC gender pay gap report that was updated in March this year showed that the median pay gap in the UK is 12.1% across all, all sectors. Wow. Uh, in financial services, it's 26.6%. Now, that gap has gone down 3% in the last four years based on the mean average. Uh, but the median's actually changed by less than 1%, which means the main change has actually been from the worst offenders, the people who are kind of egregious, well, it's already egregious as it is, but even more egregiously underpaying female staff. Um, and the mean pay gap at building societies has actually increased, which is which is nuts. I mean, there's all sorts. I mean, you could add other things to it. The gender pay gap reporting is mandatory for companies over 250 employees. Mm -hmm. um, but ethnicity pay gap reporting isn't, and Share Action's launched a campaign to address that. Because I, I think when we talk about these things, it's what you're doing is brilliant, like helping people to think about how they can do better in their careers. But I also think the system doesn't quite work. So what words would you have for people who are in charge of, of large organizations? What would you say to them to help facilitate that talent? Well, um, I definitely agree with you. Um, these women that I meet aren't in and of themselves broken in any way. They're actually just trying to function in a system that is um, biased to an extent as well. So I would say to leaders of these kind of organisations, um, how are you supporting and fostering um, talent of all kinds in your organisation? I think, again, kind of tailored mentorship schemes or workshops or initiatives are really good. I've been working with one fintech that has done like a six-month female empowerment programme for women um, at the fintech and just 
put them in a range of different sessions, supported them. Um, and it's kind of women from all different kind of uh, business operations within the company coming together, sharing ideas. And not only is that done great things for the company's, um, yeah, people's affiliation with the company, but also for people's sense of that the company cares about them and their growth. Um, especially in FinTech, people move jobs quite quickly. So how do you get, leave that kind of long lasting good memory with your employees um, and show them that you care about their journey um, so that we can improve the representation stats across the industry as well. Mm-hmm. And definitely, in your group's focused on millennials, but do you get people from other kind of age cohorts reach out to you? Yes, and we say, come on along. Um, yeah, I think it's really good to get, um, you, you can be a millennial at heart, I guess. <laughs> Not only by age, I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I really think now, I think, we have the most generations working in the workplace at once. I think it's five generations working in, at work. So there's so many amazing lessons that we can learn from older generations about navigating the workplace and vice versa. Um, so yeah, more than welcome to have people from different age groups. And I think it makes it for an even more interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and what topics frequently pop up? You know, What are the things you talk about most in this group? I think um, definitely personal branding has been a popular issue, thinking about how you talk about your achievements. Um, that might not come as naturally to women sometimes. Um, and how to talk about your achievements in a digital first world where you might be working remotely or hybrid um, and you see colleagues kind of shouting about things on LinkedIn and how can you do the same in a way that feels authentic to you. So we talk about that a lot. We also talk about, um, I guess, the evolving um, status of leadership for young women who might be leading their first team where they're quite young, but there's someone in their team could be maybe almost double their age um, and how do you deal with those dynamics um, how do you think about kind of personal finance um, whilst you're working and salary negotiation and topics like that so really thinking at the kind of grassroots level um, how to support women in conversations they might be having in their personal and career lives as well um, so yeah it's really good fun yeah brilliant I mean, obviously I've discussed part of the industry that doesn't work that well you know the gender pay gaps pretty pretty jarring um, but I do still think we look at fintech in particular it's part of financial services obviously there's such a great opportunity out there for millennials and gen z's you know new people getting into this industry there's so much exciting stuff going on as I hope we kind of conveyed earlier on in the podcast mm-hmm. now how do we get more millennials into fintech in your opinion I think we have to remind them that fintech and tech more generally is not just about kind of six figures. <laughs> it's not just about trying to earn loads of money. Um, that could be a great byproduct, but it's actually about working at the frontier of innovation, feeling like you're taking an industry and spinning it on its head. Um, yeah, just bringing new ideas. And I think one thing that I, that drew me to tech personally from, I used to work in consulting was just the idea of um, how much it appreciates uh, proactivity and new ideas um, and people who have that energy that young people naturally have um, that want to get stuck in with a range of different things. Tech really does embrace that. So um, I would encourage uh, young people to, yeah, come and bring all of their energy into FinTech and help us uh, recreate this industry. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a great, it's a great advert for fintech, and and, and culturally, you know, what, what, where do you think we're at with fintech? Because, as you say, there's an opportunity to build things, and the conferences I go to are probably a little bit more modern than the financial services ones I usually attend. Do you, do you think that's a a welcoming place for people? I think generally fintech can be. Um, 
definitely still some um, gender representation oh, issues sure. yeah. <laughs> at some of the events that I go to, plus, yeah, and ethnicity as well. Um, but I think generally it is quite welcoming. Uh, Fintech attracts quite diverse talent from internationally as well. So there's that ideas mix as well. Um, so I think there's more to be done, but it is generally quite welcoming. And if you show you're passionate and that you've done some reading and um, you sign up to a couple of newsletters and you listen to podcasts like this, people will appreciate that. Nice one. I, I welcome anyone endorsing my podcast. That's always <laughs> good. But no, it's funny what you say about inspiring younger people because a lot of this stuff, like these opportunities like democratizing investment, uh, you know, getting involved in apps and things that will have a real felt impact on people's lives, I think is amazing. And I would urge any younger people listening to this not just to think about pay. I mean, we did a CityWire works with a local school um, up the road and we did some presentations for them about different careers. Every kid asked pretty much the same question every time. How much do you earn? Oh, God. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thankfully, they weren't asking me that. But <laughs> <laughs> but that still seems to be a, a thing. But um, yeah, so many great opportunities to make such a difference. Uh, look, Mary, do you have any parting thoughts to, to leave us with today? Uh, no, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Ian. Um, yeah, do reach out to us at Seckle if you're interested about investment apps, embedded investment, investment propositions. And yeah, happy to always chat about investing, wealth tech, careers, that kind of jazz as well. Brilliant. Thank you, Mary. And now I've got to run away and think of a clever title for this podcast, which has covered several themes and topics. But look, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you for joining me. And to everyone who's listened, thank you for joining us this week. I'm Ian Horn, and this is The Wealth Tech Show. Goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.